0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. The title of the message this morning is Grace and Gifts, Part 5. It's the last installment of that five-part series. The main scripture, Romans 12, 1 through 8. Last week, we obviously spent the entire sermon looking at prophecy and um, words of knowledge And what that might look like in the life of a church. After the gift of prophecy, if you look at in your Bible, in verse 6 of our text, Paul goes on to mention these other gifts. First, the gift of service. Then the gift of teaching, exhortation, contribution, which Paul says should be done with generosity, and then there's the gifting of leadership, which is to be done with zeal, and finally, acts of mercy to be done with cheerfulness. Now, it's very important that we remember the context here. Please look at verse 1 again of chapter 12 with me. The Apostle Paul is appealing to us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So, yes, we are one body. Verse 5, we are individually members, one of another, absolutely. But let us never lose sight of the fact that the entire Christian life whereby we serve is spiritual worship unto God. This is the context in which we are interpreting these verses this morning. This is the context of our Christian lives. One body, many members, members of one another, devoted to God and to each other as we are being transformed through the renewal of our minds so that we may discern what? The good and perfect will, acceptable and perfect will of God. Please also remember that even though we have different gifts in the body, it is God who calls and gives by his mercy and his grace. We have nothing to do with it. This should cause us to have humility of mind. And as Paul says in verse 3, we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Instead, we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment because Paul says that even the very measure of our faith is a gift assigned to us by God and that's in verse 3. So, it's like this. You can't take credit for the Christmas gifts that you're going to receive next month if they're truly a surprise. The gifts, or the gift giver, I should say, are the ones who thought of them. They are the ones who purchased them. They're the ones who wrapped them and they're the ones who gave them to you or who will give them to you. You have nothing to do whatsoever with the gifts that you receive therefore you cannot in any way, shape or form take credit for them. Maybe not the greatest analogy but I try. It's the same with these spiritual gifts from God is my point. He bestows them upon us according to His will, not our will. The Lord gives us these gifts to serve one another in the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, the Greek word in verse 7, okay, if you look there in verse 7, for the word service, diakonia This is where we get our word deacon from. It means to serve or to minister to, especially carrying out commands. It can also refer to those who, by the command of God, proclaim and promote religion among men. These are the nuances of the term that I'm sharing with you. It's very, very important to understand that this word's meaning can include and many times does include offices that people hold, like the office of the prophets, the office of elder, evangelist, teacher, etc., etc. Those are offices whereby those gifts are exercised from. In other words, this word, diakonia, or I should say diakonia, fits the context of Romans 12 perfectly. In that, as I said, it not only captures the general call of God for us to serve in the church, but it also encompasses the official sanctioned position or office by which these gifts are carried out. These various gifts are carried out. As a matter of fact, the root word, or I should say the root of the word, literally means to wait on tables. Which we saw, remember, over in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, when the apostles had to appoint deacons to take care of the widows and the other daily needs that had arisen, the daily business of the church which required wise and capable men to carry out Okay, the office of deacon was born and again we see with this Greek word not only the gift present but also the office present and a deacon by the way I'll just throw this in here has a tremendous responsibility of using that office to serve in that local church or um, at least in in part to free up time so that the elders or the pastors, I'm using them synonymous, have more time to devote to prayer and more time to devote to the study of the scriptures. That was the purpose why they did this in Acts 6. Today we have... We have it backwards in many of our churches. Pastors cannot spend adequate time in prayer and in the word studying because no one wants to help them with the business of the church. That's where we're at today, in America at least, okay? Um, this is all outlined, by the way, in First Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, which are the the um, descriptions of what a deacon should look like. Okay, I'd like to mention one other thing that isn't in the text but I think is very important because it's so prevalent in the church. There are some people who do not know how to receive a gift whether it be from God or from someone else. Um, We've only been speaking thus far of those who are the givers of the gifts, but what about the receivers? Um, You may be like this, or you may know someone like this. There are people out there who are too proud to receive a gift. This includes receiving benevolent acts of service from Someone else who might want to bless them, they'll say things like, um, don't bother uh, getting that for me or, or bringing anything to me. I don't even, I don't even need that. Don't, don't be bothered. I'm good. I'm good. How many of you have heard that before? I don't, I don't need you to cut my grass. Um, I'll, I'll pay someone to do it. You know, no problem. Or maybe after you've had surgery... You know, you, you don't need to bring us any food. Um, we, we can manage without it. No big deal. They just don't want to receive. Now, granted, there are times when you've got too much food after surgery and you have to say no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that make a habit out of not wanting to accept gifts. That's what I'm talking about. Or service. Okay? I used to be like this. And sometimes I still catch myself being like this and have to talk to myself. Uh, One day when I was a much, much younger lad, uh, a pastor heard me turning away. It was a pastor that was mentoring me, actually, heard me turning away someone's act of kindness toward me. And he said something to me that permanently changed my view of such things he said to me, uh, shame on you. And he was serious. He said, shame on you. By denying their charity, he said, toward you, you are depriving them of God's blessing. In other words, God is going is to bless them for their act of love and service toward you, and by not allowing them to do it, you're depriving them of the blessing of God. Now, we all know especially as uh, people of the Reformed tradition, we know that, and I even knew this at the time, God's most likely going to bless them uh, for their charity towards me whether I receive it or not. But that's not the point. At least that's not what I took from the situation. God showed me that I have just as much of a responsibility to receive their love as they have to give their love. Now, if God is trying, I mean, we could go as far as to say, you know, anthropomorphically in a human way, you know, if God's trying to bless you and you don't receive the blessing, you're throwing it back in God's face. But you all know what I mean. I'm not being flippant when I say that if God wants to bless you through someone, you should let them bless you. So, also, we need to think In this context, we need to think of the work, the time, the effort, the money, etc., that people might be putting into their gift to you, whether it be a material gift or a gift of service to you. Do you really want to be that person who dismisses all of that effort because you're too proud to receive a gift just something to think about moving on what are the other gifts that follow in the text after the gift of service there's the gift of teaching if you have the gift to teach folks you will know it without a doubt how will you know There are several ways in which you will know. First, people who have a gifting to teach love knowledge. They love knowledge. They are like sponges soaking up as much knowledge as possible regarding their given field of interest. And in this case, that would be the Bible. Bible knowledge Theological knowledge. Someone who has been called by God to teach in the church cannot stand. They cannot stand to be away from the Bible and from theological study. Am I speaking the truth, Pastor Steve? They also cannot stand to be away from teaching very long. They have to teach. And if they don't teach, their face is going to explode. Okay. And they also cannot stand, it should come as no surprise, they cannot stand to be away from their books for very long. I was recently rereading sections of David McCullough's book on the life of John Adams, great book, the HBO movie, well done, but Tom Hanks went and just decided to change history to make it more palatable to Hollywood, so stick with the book if you want the truth. But anyway, great book. While Adams, John Adams, was away from home for long periods of time, which he often was, as not only serving in Congress, but presidency and across the Atlantic in France, and he was gone a lot, long periods of time. So he was writing a letter to his wife, Abigail, and he says, quote, I want to see my wife and children every day. I want to see my grass and blossoms and corn, but above all, except the wife and children, I want to see my books. <laughs> so Adams had a thirst for knowledge, and he had a flair for sharing it, just like so many others who have the gift to teach. I remember watching an interview um, on book TV of Shelby Foote. Well, Shelby Foote, for those of you who aren't aware, wrote uh, the famous three-part um, uh, series, three volumes, on the Civil War, uh, 1.2 million words that he did with a dip pen and bottles of ink, the whole thing. By the way, just a little book, Alexander Shultzenitsyn, if you know him, wrote the Gulag. Okay, three volumes. Also, I think his was like three million words. Um, wrote it all by hand. And from memory. Pardon me? And from, memory. and from memory, yeah. He lived it. Um, so the, the person interviewing Foote in this interview asked him why he dropped out of college. And he said, quote, because I didn't go to class very often. I saw the university as a library with a bunch of buildings around it. <laughs> and he said, and I spent every waking moment, you know, reading in that library, and I didn't go, I didn't go to class. Um, I thought that was insightful. So anyway, the acquirement of knowledge, if you have the gift teach, to teach or even to write is my point, okay? Which brings me to the next characteristic that people have who are called to teach. There's more. They have an unquenchable desire to share that knowledge with other people. You just have to do it. You have to share it. It goes beyond that, actually. I would go as far as to say it's their passion to share it. It's what they live for. They simply cannot contain themselves. They have to tell someone about what they read or what they studied or what they found. This nugget, that nugget. The next thing that you'll know if you know you're called to teach, you'll know that you're good at it. And how do you know you're good at it? Because people will tell you that you're good at it. They just will. Plain and simple. Uh, you know you're a good teacher if people easily understand what you're teaching. You have a God-given way of conveying knowledge that people don't have. And as a result, people want to go and apply what you've taught them, and that's perhaps the highest form of compliment for a teacher. If you're a good teacher, your students will get a fire lit under them because of your teaching. They will get excited about sharing what you've taught them with people that they know. Have you ever had a teacher in high school or college who you knew from day one, class number one, had no business whatsoever being a teacher because they couldn't teach their way out of a wet paper bag? You know teachers like that? I used to tell my college students, When you get a professor like that, drop the class immediately. Take it during another semester with a different professor because you're just going to get frustrated, you're going to mess up your grade point average, and you're going to waste your parents' money. And it's true. There are a lot of people out there teaching that shouldn't be teaching, especially on college level. So the bottom line is that you know. If you've got the gift to teach, you know. And you know by these, these different ways. Now, I'd be amiss if I didn't say this, um, especially when it comes to a Bible teacher. The highest quality of a good teacher is humility. You can be the smartest person in the world, but if you have a high Opinion of yourself, your pupils will sniff that out immediately and they will tune you out. So let's get practical for a moment. What do you do if you're in a church or a parachurch ministry uh, and you think that God might be calling you to teach? Well, After, of of course, prayerfully considering it, of course, you would bring it to the elders of the church or the ministry and express your desire to use your gift in the body of Christ. Typically, not always, but much of the time, um, if someone comes to us and expresses an interest to teach in a certain area, it's an answer to prayer for us as elders. And what I mean is much of the time we would already have been praying for the Lord to send us someone to teach in a certain area where a teacher is needed. And most of the time we are already waiting with expectation from the Lord for him to answer that prayer and send us that that teacher we've been praying for. So, If we were to plug you in to a place and it would work out, then we would know it was from the Lord, usually. So, again, I'm not speaking in absolutes. This is just usually. So, obviously, as I said, um, exceptions. Now, let's move on to the next gift. Exhortation, verse 8. Verse 8 is a meaty verse. There's a lot in there. This word, exhortation, in the Greek means to call near, invite, or invoke. It means to persuade, beseech, entreat. Okay, But to what end is the question. Well, in the New Testament, the word is mainly used to encourage believers to give attention to reading the word of God, and learning doctrine, 1 Timothy 4.13. The Bible also teaches that there is a need to exhort Christians to continue in the faith when they are discouraged because of the many tribulations that come along with the Christian life. And we see that in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. In Acts 14, we see the Apostle Paul, just having been stoned and left for dead by the Jews who came to Lystra from Antioch, if you remember, and Iconium, just to stir up the crowd and cause trouble for Paul. Remember that? The next day, Paul and Barnabas, after Paul was stoned and left for dead, they not only went back into the city, but they also went to Derby to preach the gospel. And the result was that they had, many, they had made many disciples. So they returned, and I'm quoting now, they returned to Lystra and Iconium to strengthen the souls of the disciples there, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, not a few, but many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. A person who has the gift to exhort others does so at times when many others will not, i.e. when they're going through difficulty, tribulation, trial, testing, and just plain old attacks from Satan. For example, how many people after being stoned and left for dead, would continue preaching the gospel like Paul did and go on to make many more disciples and go on to exhort and encourage. I'm going to start using that word synonymous here, exhort and and encourage them to persevere in the faith because they are uh, most likely going to encounter the same type of tribulations that you are. And at some point, they might even be martyred. So, that's what people with this gift of exhortation do. They encourage others. They encourage their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ through thick and thin, not only in good times, but also in trying times. Scripture also teaches, folks, it also says that we are to exhort, to warn them who are unruly, okay? We are to exhort those that are unruly, we are to comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and we are to be patient with all men, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We are also exhorted in verse 22 of that same chapter to avoid all forms of evil. That's something we need to meditate on. Avoiding all forms of evil. I see a lot of Christians these days exposing themselves to evil. And and honestly, it baffles me. It does. Something we need to think about Then we are exhorted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 16, verse 17, to mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we have learned we are to avoid such men. So there we go with the warning again. And we really could go on and on and on. Exhortation has so many levels in scripture it's unreal so much application we are often exhorted in scripture to do many different things and a person who has this gift will make himself aware of those things and i'd like to point something out in regard to this gift and more recent bible translations some of them use the word encourage, as I said, instead of the word exhort. And that's okay in most instances from a language, lingual standpoint. I just wanted to mention that in case your Bible translation that you're using now um, uses the word encourage instead of the word exhort. Okay. Now, lastly, the person who has this gift Not lastly, the sermon's over, by the way. (laughs) Lastly for exhortation. Okay? The person who has this gift of the ability to exhort or encourage others is typically a person who is positive and passionate about the Christian faith. And they are typically, genuinely caring towards everyone else. And that is all typically shown by the fact that they have a natural ability to be able to rally people, to be, be able to rally other believers to consider spiritual things without them even knowing it. In our church, he's in the other room, so he'll only be embarrassed when, embarrassed when he listens to this, um, And this is not at the exclusion okay, of other people in our church because there are more people. But when I think of this gift within our own body of Christ, the first person that immediately comes to my mind is Tim Pfeiffer. Tim is already a deacon. He's our only deacon, but he's a deacon. And many times in my experience, most deacons have the gift of exhortation. So it's no surprise to me But when when Tim and I are talking about the Lord, okay, I always come away encouraged and with a renewed attention span to spiritual things that maybe I didn't have when I showed up, but I had when I left. And that's what someone with this gift does they challenge all of us to rise to the occasion, to answer the call, to persevere to the end. They remind us of why we're here and what this whole Christian life is about. And so this is a very, very important gift to the body of Christ. All right, moving on. Next gift, contribution. We could call it giving, okay? One who contributes, which Paul says is to be done with generosity, or liberality, as some translations say. Now, why does Paul add, follow me on this, folks, because I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail here. Why does Paul add generosity to the gift? I originally thought that he may have added it because he knows that so many times people don't contribute generously, but instead they contribute stingily perhaps out of their excess and not out of their poverty or out of their excess and out of no real sacrifice, okay? All of that, if this is the optimal English word, generosity, the the optimal English word being used here, but I don't necessarily, necessarily believe it is the optimal English word that should be used here. Let me, please let me explain. Um, The word contribute carries the Greek meaning of sharing things with people in need. I want you to remember that sharing things with people in need. We see this word in Ephesians chapter four, verse 28, where Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so so that he may have something to share with anyone Who is in need? And we need to look at Luke chapter 3, verse 11, where the people who had just repented of their sins and who were just baptized in water said to John the Baptist, What should we do now? And Johnny B. answered them and said, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise. Share your clothes, share your food, okay? And so we see something abundantly common here in Scripture or at least we should. Those Christians who contribute are people who are always looking for opportunities to share whether it's from their excess or their poverty. They are still always looking for a way To share. You with me so far? Like this. Okay. When I was doing this word study in preparation for this, I couldn't shake this image, don't know why, in my mind of my experiences at lunch at my Catholic elementary school as a kid. We would all be sitting at these very long, Cafeteria tables, you know them, right? And they're all kind of butt up against each other. It's like a train of tables. And we're, we're maybe eight or nine years old, and we're sitting there at lunch with our brown paper bags because that's what we carry our luncheon. Unless you were well-off uh, kids, then you had one of those big honking metal G.I. Joe, Dukes of Hazzard, Starsky and Hutch lunchboxes, right, with the thermos, okay? And, you know, time and time again, we'd be sitting there every day, with our friends. And my friends, I grew up with seven boys on the street and uh, two of them were brothers. Three of them were brothers. Then there was me and another kid. Is that seven? Yeah, seven. Okay. So my sister is 10 years older than me. She got married when she was 18. And so I was eight. So I was kind of raised like an only child. So it's me and this other kid who was the youngest in his family, raised like an only child, and then all the other kids, were they were brothers with each other. But we all ate lunch together, okay? And my friends typically had, um, not not just those kids on my street, but all my friends, typically had, nine times out of ten, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like every day, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And it was because their family couldn't afford to buy lunch meat every day, to give them lunch meat every day. We only had hot lunch on Fridays, and that was one slice of pizza, (laughs) which was like, sent your blood sugar. I mean, you know, you're starving till 11.30, 12 o'clock, and they give you this piece of simple carbs, and you're just like, it's crazy. Anyway, I can still remember that. Food coma at, you know, age eight. So anyway, (laughs) these kids with the PBJs, they, you know, the only other thing they'd have in the bag is an apple or an orange. You talk about sad. And so I can remember, I, I would, my parents were a little bit better off, and so I didn't have the lunch box, but I did the brown paper bag. But I had Twinkies and ho and, and <laughs> cupcakes. And sometimes I would have um, sandwich baggies with potato chips or Fritos in it. I don't think Doritos were invented yet. But anyway... That's what I had. And I can remember feeling really, really bad because I knew that some of my closest friends didn't have the good stuff that I had and some of the other kids had. And I even knew why, because they told me why. Their parents told them, we can't afford it. So they told us, we can't afford it, right? So even though I felt bad, for my friends. I mean, after all, we played together every single day from morning to night. I'm still in contact with a lot of them, actually. Even though I felt that bad, despite how I felt, I can't remember ever even one time offering to share any of my snacks with them. I wasn't giving my Oreos up. I wasn't <laughs> giving my cupcakes up. Okay? I don't care how bad they made me feel with their PBJs and their Apple. Okay? So, what is my point? My point is, I had a heart of stone. I was totally depraved, just like every other little kid was. Okay? We didn't care enough about our friends to share one of our two Twinkies with them. We just didn't care. And... It takes a heart of flesh to even think about, you know, giving away your extra tunic, your extra coat, because you got two, or to give away your extra Twinkie because you got two. And I think what I want you to see here is that these people, that John the Baptist, uh, these people that were baptized, I should say, by John the Baptist, who gave away their food and their clothes. They did so because they repented before they were baptized or they repented as they baptized. They were converted. As an eight-year-old Catholic boy, I had been baptized as an infant, but I had not repented of anything. Nothing. Didn't even know what the word meant in a parochial school, reading out of the New Testament every day in class. Had no idea. So, these decisions to contribute that the Apostle Paul speaks about in our text, they are made by people whose hearts have been regenerated through God's saving grace, which has in turn enabled them to come to a place okay where they feel that they need to help other people to give things away things they have in excess now i'm not suggesting that um kind acts don't count when non-christians do them okay what i am suggesting is that Kind acts don't count to God when non-Christians don't do them. You with me? Why? Because it's Christ who makes it right before the Father for you to do these kind acts. Back to the word generosity. In English, it carries this connotation that you're giving out of your excess, but it does not adequately capture everything that's there in the Greek in verse 8 of our text. Maybe somebody is giving out of their poverty. Maybe they don't have much and they are giving all that they have. Okay, That's not caught with that English word but it should be let's take a closer look at the language of the text the Greek word in our text is more in keeping you'll hear commentators say this more in keeping with the English word simplicity meaning contributing or giving with sincerity purity singleness of mind graciousness simplicity simplicity You may think that I'm splitting hairs. I beg to differ. When you do a word study on a passage like this, on this passage in particular, um, simplicity or singleness of mind is actually more defendable as the meaning than the passage meaning generosity as in giving out of excess or giving out of what you have. This is more about giving out of what you don't have. It's sacrificial giving is my point. Sacrificial giving. The name is often used in Scripture to convey that you're giving out of what you have as oneself. Now that brings me to the next point, okay? It does not mean that you're giving out of your office, your gifting office, the office that you find yourself in. In other words, if you are a person follow me on this analogy, who holds the office of CEO for a pharmaceutical company, and you decide as a CEO to give $10 million to a politician's political campaign this year out of the company's coffers by way of your official position as CEO, your office in that company, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Okay? He isn't even necessarily talking about men who hold the office of elder and decide to give $100 out of the church's benevolence fund to a missionary who is home raising support for the mission field. That's not what Paul's talking about here, okay? This is a word that is better expressed by the dude who has two tunics and not much else, and despite that, decides to give his other tunic to his fellow brother or sister in the Lord. That is what the meaning is here. So, it's a giving out of oneself personal stuff. It's a giving up of self. Not using your excess. Oh, here, by the way, I have an extra 10. It's not what it is. So, I say all that to say this it's personal sacrifice, not corporate sacrifice. It's personal sacrifice. This isn't the Pope ordering the, a Latin American diocese to open a clothing factory for the poor. This is the missionary in the jungle giving the clothes off his back to one poor man who has no clothes. This is a kid at the lunch table saying to the kid next to him who has a PBJ and an apple, here, have one of my Twinkies. That's what this is. So this is incredibly important. Anyway, the word generosity will suffice for our English translations, which most of them use, but now you know the real thought that's conveyed here. So, oh, and by the way, I, I don't know why this is, but it is. I know that, I know that, right, I'm getting off on a tangent here. Okay. Okay. I know that Roman Catholics lean towards what we call liberation theology. Liberation theology was started and made popular by Roman Catholics. Um, Liberation theology is a socialistic gospel. Short definition. Okay. Very popular in Latin American countries amongst Catholics. I should say amongst Catholic politicians and leaders including bishops and cardinals. Um, in many, in two Catholic translations that I checked of the Bible, okay, um, they interpret this the right way. And the Protestants, in my opinion, picked the wrong word, as I said, a million times. Um, I don't know why that is. I think it might have something to do with interpreting the text from a liberation theology framework of social gospel, giving of oneself, giving your last, your second coat away. Yeah, only have two. Giving your food away. Anyway, for those of you who want to go off on a tangent and study that, there you go. Okay. Anyway, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I never go this long. Okay. It's my last sermon until January, so put up with me. Personal generosity. Okay, moving on. Latter part of verse 8. We see our next gift, which is that of leading. And Paul says that one should do it with zeal. Some commentators are of the opinion that Paul uses this word zeal because leaders typically aren't supervised, and sometimes have a tendency to get lazy in their responsibilities. That's pure speculation, and there's absolutely nothing in the text uh, to suggest this, but that's what a lot of commentators say. Um, Paul always conveys, both in word and deed, to put forth one's best effort and I think that's what he means here when he uses the word zeal. Work hard with vigor. That's Paul. Christians should be putting for, uh, forth the effort necessary to be the best that they can be at everything they set their hand to because, Paul says, we're supposed to do everything to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Okay? Everybody with me on that? Okay. The last gift listed is one who does acts of mercy and Paul says we should do those with cheerfulness. Most commentators are in agreement here that these acts of mercy consist of compassion toward those who are physically or mentally ill or people suffering from emotional distress or people who need economic assistance. This comes out in the original language. Large churches, um, like one, the one that I was on staff at, typically have an associate pastor in their litany of pastors that are on staff, they'll have one associate pastor who is entitled the pastoral care minister. And the pastoral care minister encompasses these types of needs, hospital visitations, nursing home visitations, visits with shut-ins, prison ministry, etc., etc. Actually, more social gospel type stuff than the other but that's pastoral care. That's what's conveyed here with these acts of mercy and this word mercy. One thing I'd like to say as we close this section of chapter 12, many people have multiple gifts, folks. Don't assume that you only have one gift. That's the first thing that we need to remember. The second thing is that most of these gifts we are commanded to do elsewhere in Scripture. This is the most important part of the five parts of this series, okay? Most of these gifts that we see here in Romans 12 are commanded in other places of Scripture for all of us to do, even those that don't have the gifts. For example... Everyone is commanded to serve in Scripture. Everyone in Scripture is commanded to be generous. Everyone's commanded to give time and money. Every Christian is to be an encouragement. Every Christian is called to visit the sick and the imprisoned. Every Christian is called to give away clothing and food and money. Every Christian is called to help people in emotional Called to help people in emotional distress, mental disorders, unemployment, all that social gospel stuff, right? We are all commanded. We all have a responsibility to do those things. Some people, God gifts to do them better than others. Some people, God gifts to birth a ministry, doing it better than others. But we are all called to do these things. So... When you read Romans 12, don't think, well, I don't have that gift. I'm never going to do that. You have to do it if it's commanded elsewhere in Scripture. And believe me when I tell you, Jesus commanded most of these things. So you're just being like Christ, conformed to his image, if you do them. Let's pray.